Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, this is the first month of 2023, and Pastor Kirk is stepping us through a series called Reset. We've looked at a variety of things, and on this week's episode, we're looking at our wealth. We'll be stepping through a passage of scripture found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Before we get to our message, I want to take this opportunity to invite you to join us at Calvary in Fayetteville. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You can find out more information at calvaryfayetteville.com or you can email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. We'd love to connect with you and let you know what we are up to and how God is working with the people of Calvary. Again, if you need more information, you can email us or you can call us at 479-442-4634. Well, let's listen as Pastor Kurt shares with us today. Well, our theme for this first month of 2023 is reset. We have an opportunity here at the uh, threshold of a new year to uh, reset some priorities in our lives in anticipation of uh, this year that God is giving to us, 2023. While we don't have the luxury of do-overs in life, uh, we do have opportunities to start fresh. And while I realize that maybe it's something that's on our minds at the beginning of a new year or maybe even the beginning of a new month or a new week, understand that with God, any minute of any day is a time to reset, reestablish, and recommit ourselves uh, to the true priorities in life. So we began a couple of weeks ago by talking about resetting our commitment to the Word of God. I hope you are uh, well into a Bible reading plan for this year and that 2023 will be a, uh, a year in the Word uh, for us as a family, that that will be a, uh, that will be a priority with you to, to study the Word, to read the Word, to meditate on the Word, to memorize the Word, uh, to... Uh, for us to be word-driven people, the Word of God. Then the last two weeks, we've talked about resetting the priority of worship. Two levels of worship. There is the all-of-life worship. It's my attitude. It's how I live. It's, it's who I am, recognizing every minute of every day uh, that I live in the presence of God, that I'm to live a life that is in obedience to Him and to honor Him, glorify Him, and all my relationships, and all my work, and whatever it is uh, that I do. Recognizing that we are 24, 365 worshipers, meaning 24 hours a day, 365 days out of the year. And there's also our, uh, not just our all of life worship, but our all-together worship, our corporate worship, like this right here, that uh, we gather faithfully and regularly as God's people to lift up the name of the Lord together, but also to edify and build up each other through the one another's of Scripture. That's uh, why we belong to a church family. That's why commitment to a church family is so important. Well, today we come to a place that I'm going to meddle just a little bit with your life. I want us to talk about our wealth. 
our wealth. Now, I know that probably, as my grandpa would say, about four-thirds of you would think right off the bat, well, I'm not wealthy, so this is passing on to somebody else. Well, understand that just simply by being Americans and living in this world in which we lived with the privileges and the providence and the provision that God has given to us, we are all, the poorest among us is by far much more wealthy than the vast majority of the world. We are all wealthy people. We've been blessed by God in so many ways. But I want to talk to you specifically about your wallet, your pocketbook. Now, I remember in Bible college, and actually before, after I had surrendered to preach, I remember the wisdom, and I'm going to put that in quotation marks, of older preachers, pastors, professors who said, don't preach about money. Because that is meddling with people, and you'll just make people mad at you. It'll be uh, the end of your ministry and all the rest. You shouldn't ever preach about money. That's a very private and personal thing. But I want to suggest to you that the Bible has a lot to say about money. And I'm convinced that those places that the Bible talks about money are not places that we are to overlook or avoid or just push to the periphery of the Christian life. If you were to ask the question, what does my money have to do with my walk with God? I'm going to tell you it has everything to do with your walk with God, much more to do with it than you and I will often realize or certainly be willing to admit. Just to give you a couple of examples before we read our text. Jesus talked about money in 16 of the 38 parables that he taught. Of all the parables Jesus taught in his ministry that we have recorded in the Bible, almost half deal with money. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, one out of every 10 verses deal with money and possessions and how we handle them. The Bible devotes about 500 verses to prayer. About 500 verses to the subject of faith. You would agree with me that prayer and faith are very important topics. Amen? Without understanding uh, faith, we could not be saved. Without understanding prayer, we could not be heard in heaven or understand what is our greatest privilege as God's people. But while the Bible devotes 500 verses to prayer, almost 500 verses to faith, understand that there are 2,000 verses that deal with money and possessions and our stewardship over our money and possessions. Jesus said more about the stewardship of money and possessions that he did about heaven or hell. In fact, did you know 
that Jesus said more about money and our possessions and how we handle it. He spoke more about that than about any other single topic in his life and ministry. So evidently, if Jesus talked about it, he wants us to talk about it. Before we get to our text, let me uh, draw your attention to two other passages. I'm not going to ask that you turn to them, but I would encourage you to make note of them because they give us two uh, broad ideas about how we are to give to the Lord. The first passage is in the Old Testament, and it talks about the tithe. The tithe. Are you familiar with that word? We talk about tithes and offerings. And there are many things in the Old Testament about the tithe. The Lord gives great instruction about that in the law and in other places. We find examples of it. But perhaps the definitive passage about the tithe is the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 3, and verses 8 through 12. Now, I'm not going to go and read all those verses, but the Lord asked the questions, and he said, basically, why are you robbing me? Why are you robbing me? And he said, you ask, how have we robbed you? And the Lord said, I'll tell you how. You have robbed me in your tithes and offerings. Now, what is a tithe? A tithe means 10%. Mathematically, a tithe is 10%. We find that uh, specified even as early as the book of Genesis. Scripturally, it was a law. We read about it in the book of Deuteronomy. Morally, it was considered a debt. We owe at least 10% of our possessions to God. Actually, we owe God all of ourselves, right? But he requires and asks for us to acknowledge his ownership by giving 10%. Someone might say, well, economically, it is an investment, and spiritually, it is a blessing, and we find in the book of Malachi, the Lord challenges his people, be obedient to me in this area of life. And he said, if you will be obedient to me, he said, if you'll bring the full tithe into the storehouse, there will be food at my table to help meet the needs of others. And the compensation for you is this, I will pour out on you a blessing. I will rebuke the devourer who eats your profits. Do you have a devourer in your house? Some of you are thinking, yes, my teenage son. Both of them, right? They'll just eat you out of house and home. But the devourer that Malachi, that God was talking about to Malachi, are all the other things of life that are oftentimes outside of our control that eat up our possessions, for farmers, it's the, it's the pestilence that comes. Sometimes for us, it's the doctor bills that come and our health. And it can be a thousand different things. It can be the repair shop when you've run into a deer on a dark, lonely road in Washington County. And for all of us, it is a government that just wants to tax and tax and tax us into poverty. 
And what does the Lord say? If you'll be obedient to me with the tithe, he said, I'm going to rebuke the devourer on your behalf. He said, many of those things that eat up what you have, I will protect you from. And he said, not only that, but I'll make you a blessing to others. I'll make you a blessing to others. Now, some would say, well, okay, that's Old Testament. We are not under the law anymore. But I would suggest to you, if you want to study that out, that long before the law was ever given, you find in the book of Genesis, Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek, the priest. You'll find that tithing was a practice before the law. You'll also find Jesus saying to the scribes and Pharisees about tithing, this is something you ought to do. You're faithful to do that, but you neglect other things. And he said, it is right, it is good to pay a tithe, but not to forget generosity towards others in need. So the foundational principle of our money is that everything belongs to God. Everything we have has come from God and is owed back to God. And we acknowledge his ownership by being obedient to setting aside 10% of our finances to give to him in acknowledgement and in appreciation for who he is. Now in the New Testament, we have this whole idea expanded on. And we have what we might call the free will offering. By the way, that word free will, the only way that it's used in the New Testament is in regards to the giving of our money. A free will offering, it's not a test of obedience like the tithe is. It is a test of our generosity. Of our generosity. How generous are we? And folks, you know, I preached for years to the churches that God has allowed me to be a part of that we owe to God our tithes, trying to get everybody just to be faithful tithers, when in reality, the great desire that should be of our hearts is that we would be a generous church, that we would be all generous people. And by and large, our church family is a generous church family. But what does the Lord say about generosity? A great place to read about this, maybe the definitive path. There are many examples of those early in the book of Acts that, that, brought, that sold their possessions to give to these new Christians that were being saved. Uh, there were those who sold lands and properties, and brought the money and gave it to the apostles, the pastors, to use to meet the needs of other people. That's generosity. But the Lord goes into it in significant depth. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9. And once again, we will not read a, a lot of verses from there. I'll read a few select verses but the need here is a Jerusalem church, the mother church, the home church, the first church. And it had fallen on hard times because of persecution. There were many widows. There was a lot of poverty in Jerusalem. Many people in that first church when it was growing into the thousands had been scattered because of persecution. And those that were left, many of them were destitute. 
And so Paul is writing to the Corinthians a second letter. Actually, it was a third letter. Uh, we find that the second letter was lost. It's only mentioned. We don't know uh, what all he had to say. But this was actually his third letter. It's the book of 2 Corinthians. And he's writing to them. And he's encouraging them to follow through with their commitment to give a free will offering to be taken to Jerusalem to help meet the, the great needs of that first church. And so he's talking about the churches uh, in Achaia, Greece, that's Corinth primarily. And he's talking about the churches in Macedonia to the north. The church in Corinth was cosmopolitan, a city church it had uh, significant resources. The churches of Macedonia were mostly rural country churches, and they were made up of poorer people. But the people of Macedonia had, had given a huge offering to help the church in Jerusalem. And in fact, he says that they went beyond their abilities. Now, how do you do that? They gave beyond what they could even afford in their generosity. And he talks about that in the first part of chapter 8. And, and let me just put on the, a screen for you some of the uh, principles that we learn from chapter 8 and 9 about the free will offering. Then we will get to our text and we will connect this with, with where it all comes from. Okay? And, and we learn from uh, the first four or five verses uh, of of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that grace is God's gift to the church. We know that, right? But that generous giving is the response of God's people who are the recipients of grace. If you have received God's grace in salvation, one of the things that that should do in each of our hearts is it should cause us to be generous people with our possessions, with our money, and our willingness to share with others. Because He gave so much for us, He has made us givers to help others. He goes on in chapter 8, and he comes to the point that basically He's saying to us, you will never be a generous giver of your finances until you first give yourself to the Lordship of Christ. He said, these churches in Macedonia, they surprised us. They gave so much, so generously. But you know what they did first? They first of all gave themselves. You know why it's hard for you and me to do this? You know what makes it hard for you and me to so generously give to others? What? I just wanted you to know that I have a $100 bill. I hadn't seen one of these in a long, long time. And I happened to have one, and, and I like to keep it in my wallet just to take it out and look at it every once in a while to know that it's there. I'm speaking facetiously, by the way. My wallet is usually absolutely empty of any kind of cash. But the reason it's hard for us sometimes to reach in and to dig deep and to give generously is because actually we're withholding ourselves from God. We're withholding ourselves. Giving generously is first of all giving of yourself completely. 
And when yourself, when your body and your possessions and all that you have, when you recognize and acknowledge and live in such a way that you are saying, I belong to God, it's not hard to be generous with your possessions in giving to the needs of others or giving to the church. You'll never be a generous giver until you give yourself first. If you go on in chapter 8, you learn this truth. Generous giving is called several times in chapter 8 an act of grace. I love that term, an act of grace. Giving generously is an act of grace. Grace not only has been shown to me, but I am reflecting God's grace towards others. Grace received results in generosity expressed. That's the truth. Then you'll find that he says, I love this verse. It's one of the great verses of the New Testament. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. Your riches in grace come to you only through the poverty of Jesus Christ. Because he was willing to lay aside his riches. Because he was willing to lay aside his position. Because he was willing to take on the form of a slave. Because he was willing to give everything he had and everything he was for your sake. Because of that, you and I are rich in grace today. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. You need to commit that verse to memory this week. So we understand this. Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. This is the poverty that made us rich. That verse goes hand in hand with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. God loved, so God gave. And the same should be true for us. Now, when you get to chapter 9, he, he talks about being a cheerful giver. And he gives us this point. If you sow sparingly, if you scatter the seed, talking about your wealth, and your offerings, your talents, your abilities, your time, your money, he that soweth sparingly will reap sparingly. But he or she who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Everybody could understand that. Does that not make sense? If the farmer, if the uh, man who owns the orchard or whoever it is, if you just plant a little, you're going to only get a little. Jesus taught that for with the measure that you use it will be measured back to you again. That's the book of Luke, chapter 6, verse 38. 
He goes on in chapter 9 and says, Generous giving is an expression of the condition of one's heart. Generosity comes from a cheerful heart. The word used in 2 Corinthians 9, God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful there is where we get, you've heard this before, where we get our word hilarious. God loves hilarious givers. That is just cheerful, not grudging, not in, in, in resentment, but in cheerful hilarity. We have the opportunity to give to others, to give to God. Not because there just is a law of the Old Testament of a tithe, but because by reflecting Jesus in our hearts, because he's been so generous to give to us, we can give hilariously and cheerfully knowing that you can never outgive God. You can shovel out and shovel out and shovel out and God will keep shoveling in and shoveling in and shoveling in and guess what? God's got the bigger shovel. You're going to benefit more than it's ever going to cost you. And then he goes on to say at the conclusion of chapter 9, your generosity will result in glory to God in worship and advancement of the gospel of Christ. Your generosity to give to God and to give to others, that generosity will bring about worship in the hearts and lives of other people. And it will bring glory to Christ. And that chapter 9 is completes with this sentence in verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Inexpressible. It's unable to be fully even spoken or demonstrated how great God's gift is. That word inexpressible is this is the only time it's used in all of the Bible. And it's talking about God's gifts to you and me. So there is submissive obedience through the tithe. Sometimes it's a grudging obedience. And there is the joyous generosity taught in the New Testament. Folks, I want you, I want every one of us here to enter into what is truly the joyous generosity of how God has blessed us. That God can take this small church and do so much to honor and to glorify the Lord beyond our abilities, beyond what we can do in the flesh, that God would do that through us in the area, in every area, but especially the area of our finances. Okay, so finally, our text. Don't get nervous because we're just now going to read the text. But all of this hinges on Matthew chapter 6. Okay? It hinges on Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, we read all the way through the Sermon on the Mount last Wednesday night. By the way, I want to encourage you to come this Wednesday night as we begin a brand new study in the book of James, what might be considered the most practical uh, book in all of the Bible, also one of the most controversial in early church history especially. Uh, the book of James has life-changing truths for you and me, as all the Word does, but never uh, perhaps anywhere in Scripture is it any more practical than the book of James. But last Wednesday night, we read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, straight through the Sermon on the Mount. And this sermon has a lot of things that Jesus said that that seemed to say, well, what does this have to do with this? And, and why did he say this over here? And, and, and we didn't try to answer uh, hardly any of those questions. It was to just take in what Jesus said and ask the question, what stands out to you? Uh, what does God say to you in this passage? Well, right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount are these uh, three little paragraphs. And it would seem, upon first reading, that they don't really have a whole lot to do with each other. Why these, these three kind of disjointed thoughts? But I want to say to you, they all fit perfectly together. It is one train of thought through these three paragraphs. And we might, we might identify it this way, that he talks about two treasures in the first paragraph. He talks about two visions or two ways of seeing in the second paragraph. And then in the third, he talks about two masters. And it all revolves around you and your money. All right? Keep in mind, there were a lot of scribes and Pharisees, no doubt, in, within earshot of this message. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He is establishing what are the principles of the kingdom of God. But there were hundreds, likely thousands of people who were also hearing the message, and among them religious leaders who were very, very materialistic people who flaunted their riches as a way of saying, look how God has blessed us. As a way of even robbing people, the poor, of what they had. So Jesus is speaking to his disciples, but his message is falling on ears that needed to hear the message. So what did he say about two treasures? Well, he said there are two different ones. There's earthly treasures and there are heavenly treasures. 
earthly treasures are temporary. They are momentary. They are transient. They are subject to be moth-eaten, subject to rust, to rot, and to theft. Now understand that in uh, that day and time, the wealthy often accumulated their wealth in the way of their clothing. Clothing was very expensive, and it was expensively made of the finer cloths, those that the wealthy would wear. Oftentimes with actual gold thread woven into the garments itself. And also they would invest their money into grain or food, storehouses. That's why you had Jesus teaching the parable about the man who had filled up his storehouses and said, what will I do with all of my, all of my uh, riches? I'll do this. I'll, I'll build bigger barns to hold all of my grain. There were not so much the banks and the places where you could put your money in things that were uh, not subject uh, to deterioration. Cloth, the clothing could be moth-eaten. This idea of rust actually means to be eaten by insects, okay? And so their, uh, their food that they had could, be, uh, could just go away, could rot. And, and all of it is subject to be stolen. So material wealth, earthly treasures are temporary. Listen to me. There is nothing you can do with your wealth or your possessions that is guaranteed to last you. It comes to an end for you when you leave the walks of this life. Now, you may leave it to somebody else, but understand, a downturn in the economy, a change in this or that, we've seen it in our uh, recent years. Our possessions, what seems so secure, can go away overnight. Isn't that truth? And you can't take a penny of it to the grave with you. It will, what you have accumulated here will not do you any good there or there. So you have earthly treasures. And he said, instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What is in heaven is eternal. It is kept. It is preserved. It is secure. It is permanent. You will be rewarded for it. Not only that, but it will earn and it will gain in value in heaven. The Lord promises you that what you do for, uh, for his honor and glory, and even if it's just giving a cup of water to a thirsty soul, you have laid up for yourself treasures in heaven. I don't often say to this, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a sorry pastor in so many ways, but I'm, I'm so proud of, of you as a church family and the things you do. The way that you respond, for instance, and it's fresh on my memory because in the last, um, well, in the last day, in the last uh, month or so, uh, we, have, um, we have buried two of the men of our church family, two of uh, our faithful, uh, good families. And you have been so good to help meet their needs, to express love to them, to share cards 
uh, with the wives to prepare food and see that needs are met. Understand, you're laying up treasures in heaven when you do that. When you write out a check and drop it in an offering box out there, never to be seen again. You're laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. When you call just to speak a word of encouragement or hug a neck of someone at church, fulfill one of those 26, 28, one another commands of Scripture, you are laying up treasures in heaven. When you read your Bible every day, when you study the Scripture, when you participate in a Sunday school class, a faithful men, faithful women group, when you come up here to the church and trim hedges and rake leaves, when you uh, bring your children to Sunday school or to Wednesday night Bible study, understand you're laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. When you just faithfully walk in this place on Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, you are laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. God is keeping record of all of that. And God is taking that that you give, that you have, things that you do, and he is multiplying it over again to meet the needs of many. I often pray that in the giving of, of our money. Lord, take this right here. Multiply it like you did the loaves and the fishes to meet the hungry needs of so many more than what I, what I give to you could do by itself. You multiply it, meet the needs of many others. There will be people that will come up to you when you get to heaven that you never saw their faces, you never heard their names, you never met them in this life, you never had any contact with them, and they're going to thank you for what you did because what you did that gift, that offering, that faithfulness resounded in heaven to God's honor and glory to meet the needs of others. That's what it means by heavenly treasures. And then he gives us this statement in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now let me say something about that because I think that's an easily confused uh, verse. He's not saying put your treasure in the right place and sooner or later your heart will come along and follow it. This is a statement that indicates what already is. What already is. Your treasure and where you put it, this is a diagnostic for you. Look at your checkbook. Look at your appointment calendar. For where you invest your time and your treasure will tell you what's most important to you and where your heart is. Now listen, that is a cyclical command. My treasure shows me where my heart is. But because my heart is there, I will continue to put my treasure there. You see, it is a reciprocal. It's not one or the other. 
It's both and. That's the way that it works. Where your heart is, is where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, shows you where your heart is. One of them motivates the other. The other way indicates what is true. Where your treasure is is where your heart is. And, where, and by evaluating my, uh, the investment of my treasure, I'm able to know where my heart is. But also because my heart's there, I keep on putting my treasure there. That's the truth of what Jesus is saying here. In other words, oftentimes we think because we have an emotional attachment to God, because we're thankful for what God has done, that that shows that our heart really is loyal to God. But where do we make our investment? In the world and in material things. Now listen, God is not saying poverty is better than riches. He's talking to us about our attitude towards it. Many of the greatest men and women of faith in the Bible that are held up as examples to you and me were extremely wealthy people. But that wealth did not become their God, did not become their reason for living. It's your attitude towards it, not the presence of wealth in your life, but your attitude towards it. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth. You'll find that you'll be disappointed. It'll go away. Lay up instead treasures in heaven because that serves not only you but others. So there's two treasures. Now there's this mysterious chapter, verse 22 and 23. Uh, this paragraph, I mean. Two visions, two ways of seeing. What does he say? He says, well, there's first of all the healthy eye. And he says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. What does that have to do with money? Well, he is showing to us at the very end of the previous paragraph that our possessions and what we treasure shows to us where our heart is. Now, here is the connection. Here's what you need to understand. In the Bible, but especially in some of the Old Testament scriptures, the Bible will use the word I... But what he is talking about is heart. The I is another expression for your heart. I'll read you a couple of verses in just a minute, and there are many. But what the I is to your body, it shows you what's around you, how to walk, where to go, what to avoid. Your I is extremely valuable to you, right? What the eye is to the body, the heart is to the soul. The heart is to the soul. Listen to these words, just in Psalm 119, verse 15. The psalmist said, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. He's talking about the word of God. And fix my eyes on your ways. He's saying, I will meditate on your word and I will fix my heart on your ways. That's how he's using the word eyes. Also, a few verses later, verse 18, Lord, open my eyes 
that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. He's not saying, or Lord, open these physical eyes so that I can understand your law or your word. He is reading, he's talking about it. He's saying, open the eyes of my heart. Open my heart that my heart will comprehend and will embrace the truth out of your word. And so when he see, it says, if your eye is healthy, the King James says, if your eye is single, that means if it's not divided, if it's sound, if it's perfect, but another word for healthy here is the word generous. Generous. If your heart, your eye, is generous, that's what he's saying, that is a healthy thing. If your heart is generous. But on the other hand, verse 23, if your eye, your heart is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Bad is the word unsound, evil, wicked. But it also carries the idea of being, now listen, don't miss this, envious or covetous. If your eye, if your heart is healthy, if it is generous, your body will be full of light. But if your eye, your heart is envious or covetous, you will be full of darkness. And then he sums it up by saying, if then, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You and I think some light is better than no light. But he says some light that people have, some understanding, some vision, some way of seeing, some light that some people have is bad light. And how great is that darkness? So he's just expounding with this idea of the eye and light on what he has said when he said, where your treasure is is where your heart is. Now speaking about the heart, if your heart is healthy, your soul and your life will be full of light. But if your heart is unhealthy, if it is envious and covetous, and you want to hang on to what you have, understand that is darkness. And if you're a Christ follower, and that's the condition of your heart, it is darkness worse than the darkness that the lost person has. And then he mentions two masters. And he sums it up in one verse, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Or God and wealth. Wealth makes a great servant to you when you use it according to God's plan. But wealth makes an awful master. For it will control you. And it will take you down a dark path. And it will lead you into idolatry. And it will lead you into the loss of all that is good in your life. So basically we have this. We can love God and use money. Or we can love money 
and use God. You know, there have been times in my life that the latter one of those has been true about me. Oh, I've never had enough that it was a big deal. But you know what? It's not just wealthy people that are covetous or can be covetous or tempted to be covetous. It's not just wealthy people that are not sometimes generous people. I'll tell you, some of the people that are the poorest are the most covetous and ungenerous people that there are. I want to be known as a generous person. There are a lot of things in life that I haven't always prepared well for in the use of money or in the use of possessions. But I just decided some time ago, I don't want to be the guy that mooches off of other people. It's not a matter of pride. It's a matter that God has given me more than I could ever deserve in life. And even though bank accounts may not be much, investments may be nil, but still, whatever God sends through me, I want to be a conduit for God to pass it through me to bless and help meet the needs of others. I want to pass it along because Jesus passed along so much to me. For we all know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that all of you through his poverty might become rich, rich in the things of God. Father, help us to be generous people. Cause us to be obedient. Father, the 10% tithe you taught in the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus endorsed in the New Testament, that's such a great place for us to to begin our walk with you and to mark our walk with you because it's to come to the place that we will offer ourselves completely and realize all that we have belongs to you and help us to generously be willing to pass along to others what you've given to us. Use us as your people in this world and meet our needs Through your son, Jesus Christ, we pray this in his name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.